I'd like to continue on in the fourth part of the series, which uh, is putting the pieces back together into jars of clay. And this particular uh, message has been entitled, Take a Deep Dive into Healing Your Soul. And I sent you a message and highlined it this way, that one can resist the glorious move of God in our lives. How many of you know you can do that? How many of you know that it, the scripture tells us in him we live and move and have our being, but we are in control of our hearts and our minds. We are in control of our will. God gave us a free will. We can make decisions as to how to allow God to move. We can also make decisions that we move on our own, assuming it's God and maybe it's not. And then we can make decisions completely to resist God. In fact, I wrote, one can resist the glorious move of God in our lives. In fact, almost all people do in one way or another. But we can effectively cancel this culture of resistance, since cancel culture is a buzzword going out right now. We have the authority and the means to cancel a culture inside of ourselves. How many of you understand scientifically what it means to grow a culture in the lab? Huh? Sure. And uh, even in our early days, even in my early days in high school chemistry, we learned about growing cultures. And today, that's, that's science 101. That's what they begin to do to begin to determine what it is that uh, is an infection or a disease. They take it, they grow a culture, and then they analyze it. Well, the same thing about us and in our lives. Sometimes we allow things to grow, cultures that develop and become, if you will, a spiritual virus inside of ourselves. And there's a cure. We don't have to have science tell us what the cure is. The cure is that we come into a new creation relationship with God and all things are made new. But if we don't cancel that culture that's working inside of us and that others are trying to impose upon us day in and day out, then that culture continues to have its identity inside of us. You've oftentimes heard me say to you, don't buy in to what medicine tells you or what the world tells you or what tradition tells you. Don't name a sickness with your name. It is not your sickness. Don't say my diabetes. Don't say my migraine. Don't say my COVID. Don't say my cancer. None of those have your identity. We need to cancel that culture. Now, let's, let's move a little deeper. We need to cancel those issues that have found roots in us, possibly even before we were born, generational curses, generational roots, things that are passed on, um, rejections, abandonments, uh, bad experiences, that seem to have found their way into whom we are and our personality such that we allow them to be so embedded that that culture continues to have a dominance. Whether we see it and it is so bright that we can announce it and name it or it's in the shadows and so dark that we don't clearly see it, we can effectively cancel this culture in our lives. And that's why no one should ever be too proud to submit themselves to allow the Holy Spirit of God and even the words and effect of work of other people that know the Lord to help us to be delivered from those kind of impediments in our spiritual walk. We choose which way to walk. We can walk in the Spirit, which is the Spirit of God allowing the presence of God in the fullness of God because He is a spirit, the Father's a spirit, the Son's a spirit, the Holy Spirit is a spirit, the Spirit of Christ is what we've been recreated in, or we can choose to walk in the flesh. Interesting thing about the flesh, that word is used many times, both in Old Testament Scripture starting in Genesis and many times in the New Testament. And while it varies from being the flesh of an animal, the flesh of a human being, something that we understand bodily and is physical, 
It also is that part of our spirit, that part of our soul, I should say, that has not been subjected to be dominated by the spirit. That's our flesh. We understand that the spirit is willing because our spirit is willing to go with God's spirit when we're a new creation in Christ. We are like him, but our flesh is weak. And that flesh is constantly trying to resist us. And it's empowered. It's assisted by the forces of the world, which is another whole topic, and by the forces of evil. And in that conundrum of the flesh and of the world and of evil, it would seem like it is almost an impossible thing to overcome, but yet when we realize that we have already overcome it because of who Christ is, then we understand that we are the problem that is resisting the move of God in our lives. You know, anybody who's overcoming an addiction, anybody who's overcome unforgiveness and bitterness, anybody who's overcome anything in our lives, and those of us who are working on still overcoming, I don't know about you, but I understand God's still got a lot of work to do with this jar of clay. I still understand there's many lumps and blemishes that he needs to let go of. I still understand there are things that I throw out and speak of to mask my identity in Christ. Isn't it interesting? Dr. Bing sent me something, and of course, I had already dealt with some of that here, that we've moved into what? A new norm. And that new norm, the symbol of that new norm is wearing a mask. Isn't that interesting? And women, you should first and foremost of all be the ones screaming the most about the fact that people are telling you that you need to wear a mask all the time. Well, that's your choice. And I know that they say, listen to science. Well, how come we don't say that to the Muslim faith and to the women that are still wearing masks and have worn them now since 1600 and 600 uh, AD, I should say, and must wear them and can't even go out in public without a mask on? Why? It takes away their identity. It takes away their gender. It takes away their rights. We have to understand part of the cancel culture that is being unleashed upon us, and I'm not going to make it political, I'm going to make it of the world system and of the evil kingdom, is to cancel our identities with one another. There are people that we see that have a mask on, we don't even know who they are until they give us a glimpse of who it is. People look in the mirror and they see a mask. And people have now made it into two types of people, those who wear masks and those who don't. Those who don't wear masks are bad and they're putting everybody's lives at stake. And those who do, they're good people. Good is calling evil and evil is calling good. Now, this isn't about whether you should wear masks or not or abide by what this president and the scientists are saying. Interestingly enough, the expert, the one who makes more money than the president does in his position is the first one who came out and Mark said, we don't need to wear masks. Now he says, we need to wear masks. Now they're telling you maybe you should wear two masks, one mask over another mask. Pretty soon they're going to tell you to put a paper bag over your head and just let your eyes look out. And then they're going to tell you to put goggles over your eyes so that you have no contact, no identity. That's the cancel culture that's going on to steal people of their identity. That same culture is working in the body of Christ to steal our identity who, who Christ is. And one of the greatest threats and the greatest danger, dangers to us becoming free in Christ is for us to compromise and for us to begin to think that, well, we could just live this way and live this way and we don't need to fully stand up for our freedoms and liberties in Christ because God understands after all. And then something else is taken away. And then something else is taken away. And then something else is taken away. And it's the enemy of our souls. It's that spirit, the great whore Babylon that's spoken of in Revelation as the world system that is all congregating and coming together. I didn't intend to go here and I will lighten up because I do want to touch some points, but I'm going to go here. Now, first and foremost, China is not an enemy of this country and an enemy of Christianity. It's the Communist Party in China that's our enemy. So be careful. Be careful. 
There's some in a culture that say that everybody who voted for one person is the enemy of the other people. No, that's not true. And so we love China. We cry out for China. The greatest revival on earth that's going to help usher in Christ is going to come through China. And we're the ones that need to, to go that route. But isn't it interesting that just recently, the WHO, the World Health Organization, that organization that collaborated with the Chinese government to conceal COVID when it was being released, the one that myself and only one or two others spoke out and exposed from the very beginning and nothing has changed, with the exception that now that World Health Organization, the scientists that are leading us into truth, went into China. And they went to Wahoon and they went to the place that was the market that's all closed down. It's been sterilized for a year now. And all they saw was a bunch of guards. What were they going to see there? It was like going to the empty tomb. There's nothing there anymore. And so then they began to, to interrogate, but not so much interrogate, to, to just have conversations with the scientists. And they said, can you show us the first 100, 150 researches about the people that were the first ones that were targeted? Oh, no, we can't show you that, but we can tell you what our conclusion was. And then one idiot, and I will call him an idiot, that came out of Sweden, a scientist, he said, well, it is possible now that we think this all started potentially with an animal. Really? No, it started in that lab. It came out of that lab. They kept it quiet, and they either purposefully or negligently allowed it to go throughout the earth. And while it was happening, they, they stacked up their stores of masks and other issues to be able to sell to the earth and to give away to people so that they could gain. And then they took their war chest and began to buy companies and bought out nearly all of Italy at pennies, worked on it in this country and around the world. And you're telling me that's not war. And then on the other hand, that same government, do you know that 20 to 30 to 40,000 people died quickly from fentanyl? Do you know how dangerous fentanyl is? And they mix it with other drugs. And it comes through the cartels in Mexico. And we would wonder and think, are those cartels that smart? Are they such smart scientists? They know how to develop this stuff? No. Do you know where it comes from? The Chinese government. And they even use their postal service to ship it. But yet they'll tell you they're trying to control it in their country. But it's as if there's a, a, a drug cartel that's able to get it into Mexico so they could send it here. And it's a drug war against the United States. Beloved, why do I go that route? Because our eyes need to get open. And we need to see that same war going on inside of ourselves. So subtle. So, so blatantly subtle in the body of Christ. And isn't it an issue that, you know, if you are pro-life, if you believe and believe it to the core of your heart that it's part of your faith that everything we are and the morality of humanity and the fact that every person that is created in the womb was written in the book of life and has an identity and a purpose for God and is important to God, it's not just a cell. If you believe that, then for some reason, you're not allowed to also believe in racial justice. But yet, if you believe in racial justice, you're not allowed to be a proponent for life from the womb because we divide it. Things trying to grow inside of us. Cultures trying to establish themselves into our very being and our faith. And then we can strip it down further and take a deep dive into our souls. Abandonment, betrayals, rejections. In the world, it gives you a right. A right to be angry. A right to look for vengeance. Do you know that some of the wealthiest and most successful and the ones that are in demand uh, in the law profession throughout this world and the Western world are those that, that, that defend a husband or a wife in a divorce case. Very interesting. One of the first things they'll do. <laughs> and believe me, I have a daughter who's a lawyer and she's in the Air Force and I'm not ascribing this to her. But if you've ever experienced a divorce or you've counseled people in divorce or you look at it, one of the first things that happens, isn't it interesting, and they tell you they're doing it for your own good, is they want to know the assets that you or your spouse have. They want to know how much cash is in the bank. 
They want to know what assets you own or she or he owns. And they're telling you it's to help you so that you can get your share. But the truth of the matter is it's so they can get their share. And then they determine how your fee is. Is your fee a lump sum and then a percentage or is it a percentage? One of the wealthiest lawyers in Miami represents the celebrities and the people that are there. And he takes his piece and he gets a big hunk of it. And yet we are those that so easily open up our hearts and our souls and our needs to the world system and to evil and allow those systems to rape us of the fruits and blessings of God. We hold on to hurts and bitternesses and we think we have a right to it and we somehow mask it so that it's pushed deep down. And then when we're done masking it, we begin to say things and declare things and they almost become vows of our life. I will never, ever, ever trust that person again. I will never, ever, ever allow that to happen to me again. I will never, ever, ever, ever. And it becomes something that becomes part of our culture. And in the way, we're resisting God. I know that I had to work hard at it and if I don't, it will creep back into me. And that is what triggers anger in me. I know exactly when it came upon me. I know exactly that I pursued it and I know exactly what happened. I was young. I was only 13 and a half. I was soaking wet 110 pounds. I was about five foot three, five foot four, maybe at the most. I was a runt and I was kidnapped along with a, a, a wealthy man and taken to a park, and we were beaten and threatened with knives at our throats. And I didn't really think I was going to live. And I was paralyzed in fear because they were so much bigger than me. And they had knives. And I remember after that, as I was crying in my bed, trying to overcome fear, something came upon me. And I said, I'm going to get bigger. I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to learn how to hurt people. It is never going to happen to me again. And guess what? I got bigger, I got stronger, and I became a street fighter. And I hurt people. And I never allowed myself to get afraid again. Instead, I called upon that culture, and it became supernatural. My wife can attest to it. It wasn't me anymore. When I went out like that, I was like 10 people fighting. Nothing scared me. But then as I realized this wasn't of God, as I realized this was nothing to be proud of, as I realized that this was an enemy inside my camp, I had to cancel that culture. And I had to go all the way back in my spirit and forgive that Puerto Rican, that black man, and that white man that kidnapped me. I had to forgive them. I didn't want to. And then I had to Ask for forgiveness for all the people that I unleashed upon. And then I had to come to that conclusion in my heart that I needed to not only suppress it, I needed to be delivered of it. There's levels of being set free of the things of grief. Some people, isn't it sad, they grieve forever. Down in the Latin culture, when we were in South Florida, and when you go to some nations, whether it's Guatemala or wherever you're called to, you'll see people driving around and they still have the date in their back windshield of a tombstone of when somebody passed away. And some of them are 20, 25, 30, 35 years. They're still mourning that person that went on. And so every day, what do they see? They see the grief. They see it when they're getting in their vehicle. They see it in their rear view mirror. How many of us see our problems when we're getting in these vessels and how many look back and see them in the rearview mirror. That's why it's such a blessing when we embrace the freedom and the liberty of Christ and we understand that these broken pieces don't have to stay cut and jagged, that God could polish them and put them back together and somehow make something semi-decent out of a mess and that we don't have to look back anymore that all things are new. Old things have passed away unless we keep them in our rearview mirror or put them in front of our face to see all the time. 
And when something comes back at us, what's our reaction? Oh my, here it is again. Or we just let it creep in. Or there's a trigger in our life and we find somebody like-minded or that's had a like experience and we commiserate with them instead of liberate them. So many things. So many issues. But God wipes them all away if we allow Him to do it. I wrote down a few points. Each one of them could be a sermon and I want to go over them quickly. These are some general areas that we as believers, and just as a few, we can fill up pages. We benefit from a life of faith and obedience in Christ. Notice I say faith and obedience. It's not enough to say I believe in Christ and then disobey Him and live a life that doesn't glorify Him. It's better you didn't know than you knew and that we end up being those that steal God's glory or worse than that, make a sham and a spectacle of God in us, isn't it? It's better that you'd never known. It's better that you never thought you were hot in the Lord and were lukewarm. Obedience, obedience is better than sacrifice. That's why we're free of the law. That's why we no longer have to be those that worry about whether we're keeping uh, Sabbath or not, or whether we're those that can memorize and give the Ten Commandments. And it's not as important as it is as having Christ in our hearts, a life of faith and obedience in Christ. Repentance isn't something that happens once a week, as some religions have it. And let's not mock it because it's a lot of Christians live that way too. Sunday to Sunday. Or until calamity comes. And then all of a sudden we want to get right with God again. And we want to do a, an examination and take a housekeeping checklist of ourselves. And we say, oops, oops, oops. We cancel them out, but we don't tear them out. We allow them to come back one more time. First and foremost, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have declared that Christ is your Lord, and if you're going to walk in the spirit of your life, or at least make a commitment to, because it is hard, we shall all stumble and slip. It's how we come back. We shouldn't be afraid of failure. In fact, it's the failures in our life that when the pieces are coming back together, make us something special. If we were just made special from the beginning to the end, what would be our testimony? I didn't have to do anything. God did it all. I was always perfect, so take that, God, and the rest of you. No, it's the fact that we stumble and bumble and we get back up and the Lord shows His glory in us because of what He does with something that otherwise would be useless. I don't know how many of you have ever faced a teacher, a coach, a pastor, a, a church board, I'm naming things I've faced, and I'm sure you've had some more, that'll tell you you're worthless and will never be anything. Hmm? How did it feel? I don't know. I was cocky when it first happened, and I cursed and laughed at it. That was all the way back in grade school, and then I had a, another nun in, in high school who told me I was stupid and I would never be anything. And I had a good time mocking her, but inside I was hurt. I was wounded. And I really started to accept that. And because of that, I didn't really care what I did or didn't do with studies in school because after all, I was going to be nothing. And I had a coach once tell me that I didn't have enough athletic skills to play, yet I got recruited to play afterwards because I was small, scrawny. He couldn't see the potential that was in a little boy that was going to grow. He just saw what I was at the time because I didn't fit his formula and need. I had a pastor when I was down and out tell the whole congregation he's finished. He will never serve God. Today, that man lost his mind. He doesn't serve God and he's getting psychiatric care. I had a church board tell me I wasn't worthy to preach. 
And we could go on, couldn't we? Put your name in there. But God takes the broken pieces and he puts them back in and he polishes them off. And you know what? There was a day. This is how I was raised. I don't know about you. I had proud, humble, second generation Italian parents. Came from, especially my mother, big family, eight of them. Interesting. She met my father. They had four. One of the children died. During the Depression, my father, family, couldn't keep them all, so they sent him away to go live with his uncle and basically be in servitude, work in a gas station, just eat and live. And my mother's family sent her away to live with her aunt. And so they both were deprived of that time with their parents. And when I was young, my mother got sick and I got sent away. And that generational curse of abandonment moved upon us. And their parents left their parents in Italy. My grandfather came over with a note pinned on his chest to New York, to NY. That's why, by the way, so many Italians in that day were called Tony. There's another Tony. There's another Tony. Hey, there's another Tony. Bunch of Tonys coming over. It's true. And the same thing with my mother's family. They had to abandon their parents to come and pursue this country. And but for a loving, patient wife and an understanding as I grew older that it wasn't just about working to provide for my family because that's all I was taught. I didn't know any better. I didn't know what it meant to build a household. I know what it meant to work. And I still work. But, <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not. For me. Happy Valentine's, honey. You too. And one of the things that happened in, in our Italian Jewish family was a reluctance to admit any problems that got to the outside. We had to show like we were perfect. Don't tell so-and-so when they come to the house. I don't know about you, but we didn't have that many rooms in our house, but the one room that had all the nice stuff in it, I was never allowed in. Wasn't even allowed to sit on it. And I would wait for that special person that would come that was allowed to sit on that chair that I wasn't even allowed to go near and to sit, of all things, with the pillow behind their back with the tassels on it. Oh my God. And so we kept things internalized and we were taught to internalize our problems, our issues. I remember we had my favorite aunt. She, she got divorced. Well, she had to. The guy she had married was in the mob. And he wasn't even a kingpin. He was just a doofus. So that's even worse. She had to get away from him because of the people that he was hanging with and bringing home. And the thing we were told, shh, don't tell anybody. And that's the way we are in the culture inside of ourselves. There's problems, hurts, pains, rejections, betrayals, fears, doubts. And there's a voice inside of us that says, Shh, keep the mask on. And we end up adjusting our identity to the mask instead of the glorious face of Jesus Christ. And the scripture tells us, it's as if we're looking in a looking glass, in a mirror, glory unto glory, transforming us. And so if we take anything out of these four weeks of messages, to take the masks off, become vulnerable. Do you know what another one of the hindrances we have 
I'm not going to like it. I know some of you aren't going to like it, but let's agree to eat that pill together. Just give me time. I'll get over it. Give him time. He's working on it. Give her time. She's, how much more time? How many more hurts? How many more problems? How many more hindrances? How many more lost days? How much longer does the culture get to grow inside of us and become even a greater virus that we pass on to another generation and another generation and we teach them, just take time. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Jesus heals all wounds. Time festers wounds. Listen to me. Time festers wounds. And those of us who know Christ, when we see it, let's not hide behind that lie. Let us say, Lord, rip it open. Get it out. If I need to be vulnerable, then let me be vulnerable. If somebody is going to end up maybe injuring me again in the same way, then give me the strength to withstand it and to show them enough grace, even if it's with tears, that I walk in the mercy and love of Jesus Christ and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You are no longer defective in spirit. You have been made righteous. Legally, before the court of heaven, and before the court of hell, spiritually and eternally, He was made sin that you might be made righteousness. He directs your paths. All you have to say is, Lord, here I am and submit and surrender. We hold back because we want to hold control, but we realize that when we do, we're out of control because we don't know which way we ought to go most times. And God will send an answer right in front of our face and we'll resist it because we want to hold on to the old way of doing things. I can't tell you how many times that people have come to me over the last 35 years and asked me, can you give me any kind of idea what I should do financially? What should I do for myself? And I tell them, and they don't move. They do nothing. And then they wonder why a year goes by, two years go by, three years go by, and they're still in the same rut. And I'm guilty of it myself. I stood in a radio station in Venezuela, preaching across the nation, and I was brought in there and the spirit of prophecy came upon me and I said, very soon, we're going to go into a recession. The stock market's going to be hurt. Money is going to be cut in half. We should all take measures now to deal with it. That was in June. In September, it hit. You know what I did to prepare for it? Nothing. You know what happened to me? Whack. The word of the Lord came from this mouth, but I didn't want to let go. I wanted to push it and keep pushing it and get it over to the finish line. And I look back at that and I say, hey, Lord, hey, next time hit me over the head with a baseball bat, will you please? Or let me hear from someone else. Maybe I'll believe them instead. Huh? We're all guilty of it. But when do we quit doing the same things the wrong way and open ourselves up and say, Lord, here it is. He directs your paths. He orders your steps. It says He perfectly directs the steps of the righteous person. You're righteous in Jesus Christ. He made you righteous. And when you obey Him, you're walking righteously. And then He directs our paths. But He can't take us down a path if we won't move our feet. He anoints and empowers us to be vessels that receive, sustain, minister divine life. We have this treasure in urchin vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. It's the theme scripture that we started this series with. 
earthen vessels that God's recreated. He puts the pieces back in and polishes them, fills the cracks, and makes it so that you're leak-proof. So that He can fill you with abundance. So that when you open the windows up to other people and pour it out, He can fill it up again. Liquid love. Liquid love. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. (laughs) We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Isn't it funny? We see it every day in the news. Arrogance and pride. People invoking the name of the Lord and trying to be humble, but God is not fooled. happened with this past president until he gets his heart humble with God he's going to stay out in a pasture like Nebuchadnezzar because you don't invoke the name of the Lord and take his glory now we have a governor in New York invoke the name of the Lord but all of a sudden boom judgment is moving fast look at it watch it fear it fear the Lord in all that we do. And don't think because you're not in the public eye, you're not in God's eye. He sees all of us. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows what we do in our quiet moments. He knows what we do in our waking moments. He knows what we do around the shadow of the fire as Christ is being persecuted and crucified as Peter did, said, I don't know him. He sees us in the shadows. But yet Jesus prays for us that we're not sifted. You're never alone. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But you can forsake Him. And even then, He's like a nagging lover that won't go away. He's right there, just waiting for a a little piece of dust, just, just something to say, I love you. And He rushes back in. Your soul has the right and the means to operate in the mind of Christ. Let this mind be ye that is also in Christ Jesus. He's not given you a spirit of fear. Fear is the root of everything that we mask. The fear of truth and being who we can be and having to let go of somebody and something that has allowed us to to stand against the things that God wants to us from. It's all fear. It's all rooted in fear, whether you see it or not. But He hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind and of love. You are equipped to be victorious. So victorious that Paul says, therefore, I'm more than a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You're not just supposed to go to war and give it a good fight. Boy, we heard a lot about fight in the last few days. Didn't we fight, 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 fight? Wow. And everybody's fighting the wrong thing. Trying to fight one another with weapons of flesh and politics. How about us? We're not supposed to just fight the good fight. We go to the fight knowing we won. And we declare the victory in Jesus Christ. How many times can you get knocked down and put back up again? Anybody know the number? All the time. All the time. Say all the time. Get up every time. There's never a knockout punch for the believer in Jesus Christ. You might get stupefied. You might get up against the ropes. You might even go down for a nine count, but you're going to come up at 10 swinging. And God's going to fight with you and for you. And He's going to show His glory through you if you get up and if you allow. You have unlimited capacity for everything that you need. Listen to that a moment. 
Why? Because of Christ in you, the hope of your glory. Is there anything that can limit Christ? Not even hell could hold him down. He has the keys to everything. When he took the keys, it wasn't just symbolic. It wasn't allegorical. Keys open doors. He took the keys to shut the door on hell. Not even the gates of hell can prevail against you. They are shut closed unless you open them up and let them in. But then you can get rid of them and slam the door tight. And guess what else that key opens? It opens the door for Christ to come in. And something about doors. He'll shut the door that we shouldn't go through if we let him. And he'll open the door we should go through to let him in. If we let him. God won't take our free will. He'll love you enough to put you in a pressure cooker so that your choices diminish, but you'll still have a choice to make. Isn't it better to make them easy and early? To identify those things in ourselves that we've been justifying and need to get go of? This isn't your typical mushy, broken-hearted message on Valentine's Day. I like to get mushy, but not when I'm trying to equip people with power. Mushiness isn't going to overcome for you. Power is. And the power is knowing who we are in Jesus Christ and obeying it and doing it. The devil loves cowering Christians. Meek is good, but meek isn't weak. Meek is strong. How many of you know what a sucker punch is? How many of you ever been on the other end of a sucker punch? How many of you given a sucker punch? You know what makes a sucker punch effective? Didn't know it was coming. Meek, <laughs> I got something for you, devil. Come on in a little closer so I can get you square. Nothing more powerful than a physically frail old lady who's on the end of her life but has known Jesus for years, stands before the devil and beats him down like a bad dream. Meek, but not weak. Remember Smith Swigglesworth the one time? I always loved the story. Wakened. Some agitation going on in his bedroom in the middle of the night. He hears some rustling down at the end of his bed. He wakes up and he looks over. He goes, oh, that's just you, devil. Good night. He goes back to sleep. Back to sleep. Resting in the Lord. Not going to lose one ounce of rest because he's agitated by an enemy that's already conquered. And then this. You have the power to declare, proclaim, and by the very words of your mouth, have victory. Start with our own inventory of ourselves, our heart. I don't know about you, but one of the ways I, the defenses I built to overcome, and many of you put your hands up, being told I was going to be worthless and I was going to be nothing and I was stupid and I wouldn't be able to do this and wouldn't be able to do that, is I kept looking for people to affirm me or I had to prove myself. And I found myself like a puppy dog just begging for somebody to say, oh, that's good or thank you or over-exercising myself to get, the, get their favor or their confidence. Or, and that's a lot of work. And you know what it does? It repeats the same problem in us over and over because when we don't get it, we live it one more time. And we say, that's the way it is with me all the time. And the enemy comes, see, 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 see. But when we walk in the confidence of Christ, then we understand that it doesn't matter what a person says or doesn't say. What matters is, how's he doing with you? And then you get great joy. I don't know about you, but I've had a few times in my life when I've done what God has told me and all hell, earth, 
and church broke out on me. Huh? I was called things I wasn't. I knew I wasn't. I was isolated, segregated, persecuted. And you know where I had to go? Only the one place I could go. Lord, are we okay? Did I miss you? Sometimes he'd be quiet for a while just to make sure that I was really coming to him and not also making him into a voodoo God. Faith. And then when those words come out, we're good, son. <sighs> then I can handle it, Father. The whole world be against me. As long as I know you and I are good and we're on the same team, let's go. That's how we have to be with everything inside of us. We have to be willing to let everything go. Everything and just let it be God. Let God out of the box that we so easily put him in. I have two shocking stories for you. The first one, if we could put the lights down and put the picture up, please. The first one is Avita Steiner and a Scottish commando named Jean McKay. Good old boy. You see, John, he rescued Edith from a Holocaust camp in World War II. He went into that camp, and she was one of the young Jewish girls. God knows what she endured. Words can't express it. And a few years back, on Valentine's Day, if you show the next picture, Edith and John McKay were celebrating 71 years together. Blissful marriage. Just like Jesus comes to you and me and rescues us. And he marries us. And he holds on and he's faithful. He holds the cup of wine. And he says to you, this cup, take and drink. This is my blood, but I will not drink of it again with you until we are finally together. The heavenly supper. Once and for all. Look how happy they are. 71 years, 96, 92 years old, celebrating Valentine's Day together, celebrating liberty, celebrating deliverance. Now, I would love to tell you, because I don't know the whole story, that they had a perfectly blissful marriage for 71 years. Ain't possible. I'm sure she probably threw a roller pin at him once or twice and I'm sure he probably said, Lord, this crazy Meshuggah Jewish woman you gave me out of this camp, maybe that camp touched her mind. I don't know what's wrong with her. And there they go, having endured so much because of love. Love. There's another one. Get it ready, but don't put it on yet. I've shared this with some of you before. There was a young girl who was whisked away from her family in Germany. First of all, they'd come out and said that her brother was being interned and needed to serve the German army. So he signed up, they came and got him and was never seen ever again. It was a ruse to kill him. He was the first one. Father was killed. She and her mother were taken and put on separate trains. Her mother was being sent 
to the furnaces right away. And since she was young and strong, she was being sent to a work camp. She jumped off the train and tried to crawl into her mother's train, but a man pulled her down. Not sure whether it was a Jew or a German Nazi. All she remembers is he told her she was too young to die yet. So she went on a different camp, two different paths. God intervening. One unto death. One unto hard labor and life. Her name is Gerda Weissman. Her last name became Klein. She's going to share with you just a two-minute testimony. It was made into a movie, too. I've shared it before here. Here's the interesting part. Gerda, at the time of her rescue, was one day short of 21 years old. She weighed 67 pounds. She hadn't had a bath in three years. Her clothes were gone and she was basically naked with a few rags covering her. Here's her story. Can we turn the lights all the way off, please? All of a sudden, I saw... Turn it up, please. A strange car coming down the hill. No longer green. Not bank, the swastika. But a white star. It was sort of a mud splattered vehicle, but I've never seen a star brighter in my life. And two men sort of jumped out, came running toward us, and one came toward where I stood. He was wearing battle gear. I had to think, you know, his helmet was the mesh over that. He was wearing dark glasses. And he spoke to me in German. And he said, does anybody here speak German or English? And I said, I speak German. And I felt that I had to tell him we are Jewish. I didn't know if he would know what the star means or anything, but you know. And I uh, looked at him. I was a little afraid to tell him that. But I said to him, we are Jewish, you know. He didn't answer me for quite a while. And then his own voice was sort of betrayed his own emotion. And he said, so am I. I will say it was the greatest hour of my life. And then he asked an incredible question. He said, may I see the other ladies? You know what, what we have been addressed for six years. And to hear this man, he looked to me like a young guard. I have to tell you, I weighed 68 pounds. My hair was white. As you can imagine, I hadn't had a bath in years. And this creature asked for the other ladies. And I told him that most of the girls were inside. You know, they were too ill to walk. And he said, won't you come with me? And I said, sure. I didn't know what he meant. He held the door open for me and let me proceed him. And in that gesture, he taught me to humanity. And that young American of the day is my husband. Gerda Weissman Klein, six years rescued. Afraid of who she was that had labeled her to be put into that position, lost her identity. Think of those words. I'm Jewish. The man contemplates after all the horrors he saw as a soldier. So 
am I? I am. She came face to face with the spirit of the I am. Oh, he was in a different body, but it was the Father who had heard her prayers in the shadows of the deepest darkness. And the first thing that man did was tear down the identity of being useless, wasted, an animal. Where's the ladies? The ladies. One word penetrated her soul. A deep dive. And a healing process began. And the floodgates of six years of abuse, rape, labor, loss, death, gushed out. And in her bewilderment, one more act of kindness. They open up that barracks, that dormitory, I'm sure it smelled worse than a hog's hand. The ones who were inside couldn't walk. They were that sick. And what did he do? He opened the door to let the lady go before him. Her words... My humanity was restored. He's the restorer of our soul. He restores more than our humanity. He saves our soul, heals our body, and sets our spirit free. He releases the prisoners from captivity. And he heals the brokenhearted. He too is Jewish. His name's Yeshua. Hamashiach. But he's the God of all and for all. And each and every one of us that declare him as our Lord, that repent. He's not just a substitution for us. For the word is very clear. That nature, that old nature, died with him when he died. And that new nature, when he was born again in the depths of hell, we raised with him unto new life. All things made new. Jesus, a little more than 2,000 years ago, took a deep dive into hell. And today, the Spirit of Christ takes a deep dive into your spirit. And He doesn't go just to spectate. He goes to recreate, not to improve, not to improve. He's more than a counselor. He's the creator. And he makes all things new. And he takes the old things and he puts them back where they belong, where he left them when he resurrected. And he puts us in his hands and he begins to wipe the wounds polish the cracks, level the lumps, and he blows his breath of fire upon that vessel, and it glows with the radiance of the glory of God. And he takes you, holds you up to the Father, says, Lord, your daughter, your son made perfect without spot or blemish by the blood of the lamb and his love.
Father, we thank you, Lord, for all the things that we could call upon in the Word of God, all the promises, all the encouragement, all the sacrifices you've made for us. What can we say, Lord? But let us be worthy of your mercy and your grace. Help us, Lord, to even help ourselves to allow you to be and do in us what you do. Lord, we see a commercial all the time now. It says, that's what I do. Lord, this is what you do. You change us. You make us into the image of your son and you receive us. We love you, Lord. Our words can't express our debt to you. And Father, we can't fathom your love. It's almost impossible for us, Father, in these frail bodies and minds and souls that we burden and carry. So Father, allow the revelation of your love to grow inside of us even greater. For we know it's that love that overcomes all things, both in us and around us and to us. Let your love grow inside of us. Expand our hearts, Lord. Deep, deep dive into our souls. Set us free. Open every door that we've shut that keeps you out. And come in with us, Lord Jesus, in all of your fullness. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that your mercies endure forever. You are the I am of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.